0: Welcome to The Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them.
1: With this case, it, it, to me, it was the family connection and, and the people that I was lucky enough uh, to represent in this case because they suffered an imaginable loss, and she was just so
0: incredible. Please rise. part is now in session. All right. Well, welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is Steve Lowry along with Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne how are you doing this afternoon?
2: I'm good, Steve. How are you?
0: I am very good. I am very good. We have nice weather down here in Savannah today. So uh so I'm feeling feeling good.
2: Yeah, yeah. It was really nice this weekend. I didn't really do anything with it. I basically did what I do every day, which is, you know, kind of becoming I'm slowly becoming one with my couch during this this uh
0: to the grindstone constantly just uh, working on your cases your clients. <laughs> well at, at,
2: I'm doing that too on yeah, the couch.
0: Right. <laughs> <Gotcha>. <laughs> Not mutually ex- exclusive Steve. Um, well very good very good. Well let me go ahead and introduce our, uh, our fantastic guest today. Uh, I want to welcome onto the show Micah Star Liberty from um, the Liberty Law Office with offices in both Oakland and San Francisco California. Micah how are you doing today?
1: I'm fantastic. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on to the show, and uh, we have a a, a terrific, a, 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 as is often the case, uh, a tragic case to talk about today. But uh, a fantastic job in trial on a very what sounded like a very hard-fought case uh, for just a, a a very deserving client and and her family. Um, but Micah, let me go ahead and give our listeners a little bit of your background so that um, so they can know who um uh, who, who I'm talking to. Um, so uh, again, uh, Micah star Liberty is the, uh, Principal and founding uh, partner at uh, Liberty Law Office, with with offices in Oakland, and uh, in Oakland and San Francisco, California. And you can look her up at libertylaw.com. And um, Micah is a graduate, uh, undergrad at uh, from U- University of California, Los Angeles, UCLA, and then uh, went to law school at U.C. of Hastings. Where Avon, uh, I don't know if ever, t- if I ever told you this, but I actually got accepted there and almost went there but ended up going up to Portland, Oregon. Um, but you did uh, not
2: tell me that. So you I did. Yeah, you,
0: yeah I, I definitely, yeah. UC Hastings was definitely on my, uh, on my list of law schools that I was uh, interested in going to.
2: Very cool.
0: And I, I feel like you to, would have
2: thrived in California, Steve.
0: That's right. That's right. Who knows what would have been? I would have been in San Francisco, you know, to just a totally different uh, direction.
2: Yeah. Who knows? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, well, uh, so Micah has uh, so has won, a, a, not only had just a number of really great cases, has won a number of awards, uh, has uh, helped write uh, the manual on uh, client communication and for California basic practices handbook. Uh, but it's just been involved in just about every organization for trial lawyers, uh, I, I think, out in California. Uh, but I'm just going to kind of go through some of these. Yvonne, we've talked about this, uh, I think, once or twice before, um, because we, we just love the name of this award. But uh, Micah is a 2015 Street Fighter of the Year Award uh, that she that she got for a sexual molestation case she handled, uh, I think, against the Contra Costa I know I'm I'm screwing that up, Uh, Contra Costa uh, County School District. Um, She got, in 2005 and 2006, she was named the Defender of Justice Award and then also got the Outstanding Service Award. Uh, In 2018, she was Women's Advocate of the Year. Uh, In 2018 and in 2019, she was named as one of the top 100 women lawyers in California. Um, And she's been named a super lawyer uh, multiple times. Um, She has been the president of the Alameda Contra Costa Trial Lawyers Association, the vice president of the State Bar of California, the president of the Consumer Attorneys of California, president of the Western Trial Lawyers Association, and she's on the board of governors for the American Association of Justice, and she... Uh, I think this might be before she uh, opened her own practice. Worked in the White House and then for two congressmen as well. So she has done all kinds of stuff. So welcome what, to the show, Micah. Thank you.
2: Thank what you. better guest to have? For uh, we're recording on International Women's Day. So what what better guest to have than Micah? Just really out there crushing it. So we're, we're I'm, I'm especially excited to have Micah today. <laughs> it's an honor.
0: Well, we're we're so glad to have you uh, have you on the show, and uh, and as I said right at the beginning, we have just a, uh, a, a I mean a, a truly tragic case uh, for just a, a wonderful young woman uh, and her family, uh, but the name of the case is uh, Le Molak versus and uh, Jewett versus Daylight Foods Incorporated. Uh, It was tried in 2015 in San Francisco County. uh, And it resulted in a total verdict for the wrongful death of of Amelie LeMolak uh, of $4 million. And um, I'm just going to give a quick rundown of the facts. And, uh, and Michael, where I have messed it up, please, uh, please let me know. But um, Uh, Amelie was riding her bike to work at 7 a.m., approximately 7 a.m. on August 14, 2013. She was riding on a road called Folsom Street uh, and she was in the bike lane and she was wearing her helmet and she was following all the rules that you're supposed to follow if you're gonna ride your bicycle. Uh, In uh, San Francisco, she was uh, getting ready to cross Sixth Street Street, and, and was riding along when a truck, a delivery truck, uh, driven by a, um, uh, a, a fellow named uh, Gilberto Alcantar uh, made a right-hand turn. It is questionable. I, I, it seemed, seemed like it might've been uh, disputed whether or not he had his right turn signal on, but uh, in any event, she was basically right beside him at the time he initiated the turn so she wouldn't have seen the turn signal anyways um, and he crossed the uh, the bicycle lane which was the violation of uh, California law you're supposed to merge into the bicycle lane before making a right-hand turn and uh, ran over um, uh, ran over Amelie and um, ultimately uh, caused her death and um, in just a, a horrific manner um, and it, this case brings up a lot of really interesting um, uh, aspects to it one is is and we'll talk about this as we go along but when the police came to investigate the case they initially blamed the uh, collision or the fault for the collision on amelie uh, and basically said it sounded like they said that she kind of just ran into the back of the truck as it was turning instead of moving to the left and going around it um, and then um, basically the San Francisco bicycle coalition uh there had been a, a I think this was the third death that year in that area. And the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition uh, had, you know, was sort of doing some outreach because, you know, they, this had been happening. And so they decided to search the surrounding area to see if there was surveillance video. The uh, coalition was able to find what the police were not. And that was a surveillance video that actually showed uh, the collision and, um, and ultimately uh, showed that the uh, collision was not Amelie's fault. It was uh, the driver of the uh, Daylight Foods Inc. truck uh, his fault. Although, as I understand it, the um, the district attorney never did. There was no ticket given uh, for the truck driver. No sort of criminal prosecution. And that was sort of a, a recurring theme of um, of bicycle accidents that have been happening in the San Francisco area. Uh, and so we can talk about that a little bit more. But um, but uh, as I said, uh, Micah, uh, tried this case with her team and, uh, and prevailed at trial and got a $4 million verdict on behalf of, um, Amelie's parents, uh, Denny and, um, uh, is it Jessica, Jesse, uh, Denny and Jesse, uh, uh, I think it's Denny Molac and Jesse Jewett, um, versus Daylight Foods. So, um, Anyways, after murdering some names in there, I'm sorry about doing that. Uh, The, the, um, I I mean, just fantastic work, and and really, what just a tragic, uh, tragic case, uh, Micah.
1: Yeah, you know this case is meaningful to me for a lot of reasons, and as I was thinking about what case I wanted to talk to you all about, it certainly wasn't the most recent, it wasn't the biggest, Um, but honestly, this is a case that meant so much to me personally and professionally. It's the one that I selected. So, um, and it's just one of these things where it's like all these synchronicities coming together to lead to this trial. I represented Ms. Jewett um, uh, before this case and a lot of my practice is geared towards sexual assault and sexual abuse um, cases. And Ms. Jewett had one of those experiences. I got to know her family not Amelie, she was she was young at the time, but I got to know her big sister. I got to know the dynamic between Jesse and Denny, her ex-husband. Um, and for one, you know, I have no idea why. I never watched morning news, but the morning that Amelie was killed, I had the local news on and I heard them start to report. And because it was the third bicycle death that year, I stopped what I was doing. And watch the whole uh, segment, a couple of minutes. Um, and later that day, I got a call from Jesse.
0: Wow. wow. I mean, it's it, it's just so tragic. And I, and I should have said that Amelie was 24 years old on the way to uh, work that day. Uh, wasn't running late, nothing like that, even though the defense tried to claim that uh, at trial. But, I, you know, I guess the place I wanted to start, Michael, on this case is... Just I, sort of the problems early on in just even investigating the case that, um, as we said, the police uh, did not. They, they in fact, faulted Amelie for the uh, collision, did not fault the truck driver, had not found any surveillance video. Um, and then even uh, to the point, it sounded like it. it um, uh, between the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition and the police department sounded like there was some tension because they had had a memorial service. The, the bike Bicycle Coalition had a memorial service for Amelie and a police officer uh, kind of showed up, parked his car illegally, got in the way of everybody and then uh, started lecturing them on how bicycles need to be more careful is, is what I, I, I what it sounded like happened.
1: Yeah, he had the audacity to park his cruiser in the bike lane, forcing bicyclists to go into um, traffic uh, to, to go around him. There was a lot of tension um, in the city at the time. And I knew the Bike Coalition just from past political work. And I was so thankful for their dogged pursuit of evidence. And we were able to. Um, get that video. They had um, located a muffler shop across the street, Caddy Corner, that had on its surveillance um, tape been able to, to record um, the actual incident. And what had happened was Miss um, Lemulac um, was in the bike lane at the corner, and the truck literally came into the bike lane, hit her with the front passenger bumper launched her, um, at an angle, um, and the, the tires went over her and her bike, both front and back tire.
2: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny because I think when I first saw just the summary of the case and I hadn't read anything yet, I think, especially I'm in Atlanta, which is a, not a bike friendly city for the most part. Um, especially in, you know, in the actual city, city, um, there's not a lot of bike line, bike bike lanes. And when they do have bike lanes, they suddenly, um, just stop in the middle of somewhere. And so then you don't have a bike lane anymore. There's not a lot of direction. I think a lot of the drivers aren't used to driving, sharing the road. Um, and so it's just funny because I think I always thought of, of somewhere like San Francisco being a place where that must be much more sort of bicyclist friendly and, and, but, But I guess the flip side of that is maybe more with more bicyclists, these issues come up. But I was kind of surprised to see that tension because I thought of it as sort of like a place where everybody's just, I don't know, on their bikes living the good California life.
1: (laughs) Well, I do think that it's gotten a little bit better. Um, I think that's mostly because uh, the police department was called... Uh, to the carpet time and time again for these kinds of reports and this kind of behavior. Um, that officer who, who got in the middle, literally, of the memorial was disciplined. And, um, you know, we we uncovered throughout our investigation officers not doing what they were supposed to do, not following the the timelines within which they're supposed to respond, not documenting. I mean, it was really, really hostile. And... I, I went personally to the muffler shop um, the day after so I could record on a cell phone an extra copy of that video because once the police had learned through the press that the bike Coalition was able to find the, um, the tape, they had gone to the, the muffler shop and demanded that it be taken down, that they get a copy and they be the only ones who, who have a copy. Um, and we had to fight to get their copy. I had to personally go to the police department to pick up a copy of the police report, which they were refusing to turn over, although they were reading from it in the press. Um, and, uh, well, you know, I think that, uh, I don't know if that was some of my best advocacy, but it was (laughs) probably some of my loudest advocacy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> in that police
0: department. Well, and as we know, I mean, you know, so much important work that, that helps you at trial down the road can be done right in the first few weeks of just gathering that evidence. It did make me wonder, you know, when when we have a... collision case here, oftentimes we will, you know, call one side or the other is going to call the investigating officer, uh, depending on what the outcome of the report was. Oftentimes it's us. I'm wondering if they did they change their findings on fault and then did the uh, investigating officer get called to trial in this case?
1: Um, We we tried to take her deposition numerous times. Um, We eventually got it. She was incredibly angry and hostile. Um, We had maybe one or two phone calls in the very beginning, and then she simply stopped returning my phone calls. Um, So we we didn't rely a lot on what the police had done. Rather, we took the photographs and the evidence and the information and turned it over to our experts who could provide an unbiased um, scientific reproduction of, of what happened.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, and and that can be such a difficult uh, time at trials if you've got a hostile police officer. Sometimes they're hostile just because they just don't want to be in court and they just don't want to be be bothered. Um, So that, that can just be something difficult. Well,
2: depending on when you're retained, I mean, you don't have, um, you know, luckily you, you know, her family did the right thing and called you quickly that, you know, knew they needed representation. And so you could get in there and start advocating for them right away because you're so dependent on the scene information. and, And, you know, we've talked in other episodes on this show, what you do when you've got, you know, a police report that just doesn't really give you anything either way. It's not, is not well done or is not thorough or whatever. And and there's certainly, there are ways to deal with it, but especially when you're talking about a reconstruction that might be needed, just a dispute about what happened. It's, you're so at the mercy of those initial sort of first responders, the people that get to that scene. And so when they, uh, you know, aren't, cooperative it can be so disheartening like i i remember when i first started practicing that was kind of surprising to me to have um police officers who like clearly didn't want to be in their depositions or didn't want to talk to you before their depositions because i just sort of thought like aren't we you know all i'm asking you to do is 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 say what you remember like aren't we all on the same page about justice (laughs) Hmm.
1: (laughs) right i yeah i mean i i Uh, naively thought that when I started practicing and you know at this point wish I could unlearn about certain aspects of humanity what I know (laughs) but right yeah we even to get the the medical examiner's autopsy report and photos was a massive fight with motions I mean we filed and won successfully you know discovery motion after discovery motion after discovery motion and um you know, we, we just had to leave no stone unturned. They got addresses wrong in the police report. They got spellings of names wrong in the police report. So we had to try and hunt down everyone we possibly could. A key witness turned out to be a gentleman who was visiting from Australia, and we were able to locate him on you know social media and, and the interwebs, um, <laughs> and and. Thankfully, he agreed to participate and gave a deposition, of course, because, you know, nothing is ever easy with technology. Um, we recorded uh, he was in Sydney and we were here in San Francisco and he, he we recorded his uh, deposition, audio and video. And when we got the final cut, the video was missing. So, oh, we no. had, you know, spend all this time thinking, OK, well, this is one of the the pieces of testimony we can just play by video. So we had to get creative um, and, and we just played his audio with, you know, the the words. Up. But um, it, it, even in 2015, we were kind of behind the times so trying <laughs> to present the tech aspect of that. But he was key because he was across the street and could see the corner and watched um, and was able to tell us where the actual impact was because on the video that was Caddy Corner it's a, it's a different perspective it's a different angle and you see the truck turn but he was able to see it head on
0: So Yvonne, the internet is getting more and more crowded, especially ever since the pandemic. And it's getting harder and harder to get noticed online. And you can have all the great verdicts in the world, but if nobody knows about them, then they're not going to come and hire your law firm. So you need to find a company like Digital Law Marketing.
2: That's right. It turns out that what you put on the internet is no good if people can't find it. And Steve, we've talked about this, but now that I finally know what SEO is, which is search engine optimization, it's really important that your firm's site is is maximizing the hits that it's going to get. And something that digital law marketing is doing that's really cool right now is they're offering free SEO audits uh, for law firm campaigns. So that's something our listeners should take advantage of.
0: Yeah, because it's hard to get around the internet and know how to make yourself visible without having somebody help you. And they are the experts in this. And not only will they help you design your website if you need to, they'll do your content marketing, they'll do your search engine optimization, as Yvonne just said, they'll do your pay-per-click marketing, social media marketing, and they also will offer full management on Google's new local service ads, which we just learned about and are trying to get into. But it's another way that you can put yourself out there and get people to know who you are. And digital marketing is great at it.
2: Exactly. And, you know, one of the things I think is cool is that you work with them and they really make you feel like they know your firm and they know you and that they help you with your web presence so that it feels individual. It doesn't feel cookie cutter. It feels like they know the people at your firm and they get what you're trying to accomplish.
0: Yeah, it's not like they already have a website done and just give you one that's already been done, but they will spend time with you, get to know your personality, put your personality into the website and you should go visit them at digitallawmarketing.com. That's digitallawmarketing.com.
2: Tell them, tell them we sent you.
0: Talk about some of the difficulties in a case like this. And we, uh, I think this is our third bicycle uh, case that we've had on. So we've talked about it before, but, um, when, when you're picking the jury and when you're trying to decide who's going to be on it, you know, some of the uh, biases that you're coming up against about bicyclists not always following the law. I mean, I think everybody's probably experienced where, you know, they stop at a stoplight and then they see a bicyclist who doesn't stop and, and just decides to keep going. So sometimes but, and I'm, I'm certainly not saying Amelie, uh, but sometimes bicyclists have a reputation for not following all the traffic laws. Uh, and I know that was part of the defense in this case is they were trying to claim that she hadn't followed the law. So talk about, you know, some of the biases you come up against and then how you address those when you're uh, when you're putting the case together.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's that's exactly right. And jury selection, I think we started trial officially, not, you know, all the pretrial stuff. Um, The the week of Thanksgiving, maybe even the week before Thanksgiving. And I don't think that we took the first witness until towards the middle to end of December. So it took a very long time. Um, We had to go through a ton of hardships because of the length of the trial and having it over the holiday um, season. And there were also it was one of those winters that was like a storm of the century winter here in San Francisco. We lost power. The courthouse was closed we would be you know in the middle of trying to select jury uh members and all the lights would go out and we'd have to evacuate I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> we would get stuck in in parking garages and not be able to get out because the gate had been you know closed had locked us in
0: oh my uh, goodness
1: so the, the process um took a while but even you know aside from all the logistical things that was our the absolute biggest hurdle was preconceived notions about bicyclists Um, you know, and and this case got a lot of publicity in the Bay Area. And so trying to weed out people who had preconceived notions, um, one way or another was a challenge. For example, one of the, um, jury members that we left on and we kind of debating it was a district attorney, um, who was a bicyclist commuter. And so she was kind of right there in the middle of, she could go one way or she could go another way. Um, but you know, it was hard to find people who had enough understanding of of the rules and what bicyclists are supposed to do, and what the experience is really like versus all the folks who have those preconceived notions. Because also in San Francisco, and I don't know if folks are still doing it, there used to be a bike ride, and I can't remember what it's called now. It'll probably come to me at three in the morning when I remember all the stuff. And <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, critical mass is what it was called. And and bicyclists would just ride through the streets of San Francisco. But, you know, 50, 75, 100 bicyclists. And, um, you know, I always thought it was a great kind of protest. Uh, but there were a lot of drivers in the city and county of San Francisco who saw that as disruptive and dangerous. Um, and so, you know, there really was a, a, a culture clash happening at the time. So we just did our best to, to weed folks out and, and to get them to talk about what their perspective was. And so it wasn't really any brilliant strategy other than just get them talking. Right. Um, because there was there was such a political debate, it was easy um, to really find out what they were thinking.
0: Yeah, you know, one thing I hadn't even thought of that I saw you wrote uh um I think it was in an article you wrote about this that where you're talking about when the jury was coming in, you know, it was easy to tell the people who were bicycle riders because they all carried their helmets or they had, you know, pads. So so for the defense, they they kind of already knew which people they were going to target and then uh figuring out, you know, what, you know, the other biases that were out there um against uh, bicycle riders was, you know, a tougher job on you than it was on the other side.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It it is funny like I feel like it's it, it's like when I'm when I'm on a bike and I have to, you know, share the road or whatever. There's either not a bike lane or it's kind of confusing. I get so annoyed with cars. I'm like, mm-hmm. you know, but then when I'm in a car,
0: <laughs> right,
2: <laughs> you know, you, you it's easy, I think, to get annoyed with with bicyclists. So, you know, I feel like it's one of those things that your perspective changes depending on what you've done or even what you're doing at that moment, you know, so it's just clearly, you handled it really well, Micah, but it's it's got to be such a tough, just a tough area. So many. Preconceptions and and opinions coming in.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I I wanted to ask you um, about leaving a uh, lawyer on the jury. I've had to do that before. And so it's always something that gives me a little bit of heartburn because, uh, you know, first of all, you don't know exactly what that lawyer is thinking. And and second of all, they're probably going to be a leader, might be your foreman on the jury since they understand trials and they, you know, understand the law. Um, so, you know, you're, you're leaving somebody on the jury who, who might lead that jury one way or the other. Hopefully they're going to lead them your way, but they might lead them the other way. So talk about the, the thought process of leaving a, a lawyer on the jury.
1: Well, because, you know, we knew there were going to be some technical aspects and there were unique jury instructions that we we're already working on. We, we thought that this DA would be helpful. Um, in that regard and really be able to explain to the late bike riders what the rules really were versus what um, people do in the normal course of riding a bike. And the same thing with with the the drivers, people who don't have any experience who've never, you know, ridden a bike um, in a high traffic area. Um, You know, I think the things that we were concerned about um, came true. You know, she was um, good with respect to liability and, and very light on damages. And, you know, that's one of the things when you have a district attorney who does serious crime cases, you know, they've seen this uh, type of damage before. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's just a whole different way of thinking about it to say, you know, we're not here to put the driver in jail or the corporation, it's, you know, this is all we can do for these parents is try and compensate them for the loss of the comfort of, and the relationship with Amelie. So, you know, it it kind of played out how, how we thought it would. Um, But she was smart. She was compassionate. She was good at her job. um, And, you know, that's, that's all you can ask for. Yeah. We also we had a priest. Um, <laughs> <laughs> not no, we didn't uh, select him. He got he got bounced. It was really interesting, um, you know, to try and figure out how do you talk to, um, how do you elicit the kind of information we need to elicit. What what's a priest's uh, uh, attitude going to be when it comes to death or mistakes that cause death? Um, and you know, so, so that was an interesting part and he was a lovely man and opposing counsel stood up and the first thing out of his mouth was, well, you're kind of in the death business, aren't you? <laughs> oh <my Jeez>. God. <laughs> so, so sometimes they were very good lawyers, but sometimes you get those gifts. You yeah, know, yeah? yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think I hear some gasps from the, <laughs> from the
2: panel. Yeah the death well, business in general no matter who you're talking to i don't know if that's a phrase you want to lead with in yeah, a exactly. wrongful death case but uh,
0: wow. well one thing i wanted to mention is um you you know knowing that you were up against these uh you know the sort of obstacles that we've talked about the biases of of the jury and uh, the police being hostile i i thought the way you laid out you were you sent us the your outline in your powerpoint uh, for your opening. And I thought the way you sort of laid out the, um, you know, the law, the rules of the road, uh, and just explained to the jury right up front, you know, here's the, here's the laws that everybody's supposed to follow. You know, Amelie was following those rules, and the truck driver wasn't. Um, and, and it just sort of very clearly um, laid it out. I'm not sure, you um, You know, I was thinking about this, Yvonne, because, um, you know, I I don't think I've handled a bicycle lane case uh, in the past. So I'm not sure I was aware that when you're making a right turn and there's a bicycle lane that you're supposed to merge into the bicycle lane. Um, so I thought that was interesting, but, ex, you know, explaining that to the jury and getting them to understand that that is the law that you, you don't just turn across a bicycle lane, which it totally, it totally makes sense. I'm just not sure a lot of people knew it, but mm-hmm. I thought the way you laid that out and explained to them the rules, uh, was, was really helpful and just sort of sets the, sets the stage for the case in a very nice way.
1: You never know if it's too law heavy, if people are going to kind of tune out and, and get bored. Um, so hopefully it was the right balance. Um, and, and this was also an interesting corner because it had um, areas where the, the sidewalk was kind of indented for cars to park. Um, closer to the buildings. I'm I'm not being very articulate, but it was just like a straight curb the entire way. There were indents where cars could pull over and park um, with the bike lane on the other side of that. So, you know, and San Francisco has gotten a lot clearer bike lanes and there's, you know, green paint everywhere. So you can see, but even those can be confusing for people if they're not used to, driving around
2: them or riding a bike yeah well and I was thinking I mean one of the things I was surprised about and I have no idea how it is in Georgia is is how much kind of statutory law that there was that you had to wrestle with in terms of you know you had kind of a more general statute you had a specific statute Um, but I mean that's why I think some of you I agree with Steve it was really effective and I feel like You do worry about being law heavy, but at the same time, you had a lot of sort of statutory guidance kind of to go through or structure to go through, which is why I could also see having that district attorney on there be very handy because um, to just kind of help you, you know, or help the jury kind of just navigate, navigate that. I think
1: um, because she was a bike rider herself, um, right. you know, that, that was really helpful. But, you know, that was all the, the team. I um, have a small firm. I've always had a small firm. And when we were about, oh, I don't know, 90, 80 days before trial, I reached out to a mentor of mine, a friend of mine, Bill Bean, and said, you know, I, I, you should we should try this case together. Um, because I had never, I'm like the first person, and I always have to check my ego like, what do I want mm-hmm. versus right. this, And how awesome do I think I am? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> versus what's best for the client and what's the best trial experience for everyone? Because yeah. we've got mom there, we've got dad from France there. I mean, this is, it's going to be long. Um, it's a lot. It's a lot to go through. And, um, so it was wonderful to, to try a wrongful death case with someone who had tried this kind of specific statutory interpretation mm-hmm. uh, case, along with not having the financial support that you normally have as a damages claim in a wrongful death case. So this was pure loss of love, comfort, society right uh, relationship. And I wanted to make sure we nailed that. Um, so I... I
0: got a bigger tent. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think it's always helpful. And I've said many times, I mean, I, I really enjoy trying uh, cases with other lawyers, um, you know, who are not I mean, I like uh, of our own law firm, but also just people who are not in our law firm. That way you kind of get to see a different approach, a different style uh, and, and see how other people uh, um try cases and it's, it's always helpful. Um, he's
1: he's a giant and I think it's probably the last case that he tried and probably will be the last case that he tried. So it's just, it's meaningful to me in that respect. Yeah.
2: Yeah. That's what I was thinking. It's always kind of a bonding experience. I mean, I sort of hate every second of trial just because I'm a control freak and I don't know what's going to happen. So I'm just like a ball of stress the whole time, but you know, in retrospect, I always look back at it hopefully usually fondly about um and it's just such a bonding experience so so that's the other thing that when you when you try a case by yourself um i, I can't really imagine doing that but also you miss out on that that sort of yeah bonding time exactly
0: um i i did want to talk briefly about this um this statutory interpretation issue that you guys had where um I guess, basically, it was uh, seen as there being a conflict between two statutes. And so you had to get the court to weigh in on which one was going to be read to the jury. And I think I'll, I'll try and explain them. And if I get it wrong, just tell me. But essentially, the defense was claiming that there was a statute on the books that um, you stay in your bike lane uh, as as close to the curb um, while you can, except when there's something in front of you, and then you're supposed to pass on the left. You're not supposed to pass on the right. And that was essentially uh, their statutory interpretation. And your statutory interpretation was that, you no, know, you stay in the bike lane. Um, and it, it, essentially, when you're in the bike lane, you have the right of way and that they're supposed to merge into your bike lane, which he hadn't done. Um, did I get the the conflict there Correct.
1: Yes, and and the reason why we had the court weigh in is because the facts didn't support their uh, argument for that statute being the one that governs. So what they had said, the testimony was, and I took the driver's deposition, it was like, you know, all the hours on the record, (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) well into the night. Um, And then he was on the stand for a number of days, too, going over the same... Um, ground, which is when did you first see her? How many feet from the you know uh, corner were you? How many feet from her were you? All of that. What their version was, was that he was coming along. He passed her, meaning he was ahead. So he had the right of way. That was their argument. And she, a woman in her 20s commuting, not an Olympic racing bicycle rider
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> that she was going so quickly that she kind of shot through on the bike lane side and that they met. And so it was her fault for riding at a clip. And I can't remember exactly what their accident reconstructionist said, you know, the rate she had to be pedaling and riding, but it was not anywhere near um, reality.
0: Right. Right. Well, it, oh, and I forgot to ask you so, did he have his turn signal on, or was that a disputed point? Ne- like, never really got fleshed out?
1: It, yeah, it, it was disputed um, based on our eyewitness and his testimony. Um, but it didn't really matter because the evidence showed where he made contact with her, he clipped her. Right. And she wouldn't have seen um, the, the, you know turn signal anyway
0: yeah yeah.
2: and it sounded like he had several issues with kind of what he said happened um initially after the accident and then how his testimony kind of changed once there he found out there was video of it or um i guess as things moved forward can you talk a little bit about that Yeah. You know, he
1: was very defiant, um, very adamant, aggressive at his deposition. He didn't make eye contact with me once. And like I said, we were in my conference room for a a long, long time. Um, He had different lawyers then. I think, you know, maybe with the second, there may have been three different defense firms that were involved. Um, You know, he, he softened by the time he got to trial, but yeah, things, things changed. First, he said, He talked about speed and then that changed. He also talked about where he was and where she was when he first saw her on the block and that changed and the turn signal, we never really got a clear uh, answer about. And, you know, to me, kind of one of the more chilling discrepancies was um, he testified that he jumped out of the truck, came to an immediate stop. He jumped out of the truck and ran to provide aid. And the evidence showed that he stayed in his truck for a long while. And the first thing he did was called dispatch.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah.
1: You know, it was a self-protective move. It was a guilty conscious move.
0: Yvonne, uh, you know that the practice of law since the pandemic has started has completely changed.
2: Completely changed. A lot more pajamas involved for me.
0: Yes, yes, a lot more working from the computer. Yes, and only getting <laughs> dressed from the uh, from the waist up. But you know who has helped that change and that transition immensely in our practice and can help everybody else in theirs is legal technology services.
2: That's right. I mean, being good at doing things virtually, at doing things through Zoom, through video conference online, it's more important now than ever.
0: I'll say Zoom or WebEx or whatever you use now. Legal technology services has completely changed how they do things in order to get you organized, looking good. Our depositions, our hearings, our mediations have all changed. And a big part of that is because we do them all virtually and we're doing them with the help of legal technology services. So they get our exhibits in order, um, you know, and you call up the exhibits by number, they'll highlight them, they'll enlarge them, they'll do whatever they want. And it actually flows really well. I do have to say, I think, my depositions are more organized now than they were before the pandemic because I used to just walk in with like a giant box of Documents and then I'd pull out the documents and go through them. And uh, now I'm much more organized because of legal technology services.
2: Yeah, and I mean LTS. I'm gonna I'm gonna call them LTS because we, yes. we're on a first name basis. <laughs> you know, my favorite thing about them is that we work with them a lot. Their staff is really highly trained, and you can always count on them to represent you well. Whether they're doing your trial technology when we have in person trials one day, or if they're handling your depositions, or they're doing settlement videos other kinds of videos documenting stuff for you you can always count on them to conduct themselves well clients like them judges like them courts like them lawyers like them
0: yeah the one thing that I have to say is uh, when we're in trial while I think we do pretty good in front of juries and hopefully they like us they always like our trial techs whether it's Bob Taylor Quentin David Liz just any one of the people over there, they're all fantastic. And of course, Melanie, who runs the ship over there, but they do more than just exhibits. They do day in the life videos, they do settlement documentaries, they do demonstratives and everything they do is just excellent. And you can look them up at ltsatlanta.com. And I can say that if you call them and tell them that you heard about them on the Great Trials Podcast, then you get 10% off of your first service. So look them up at LTSAtlanta.com. And I do want to say, even though they're based in Georgia, they do work nationwide. And I know they've done trials all over the country. Uh, But look them up at LTSAtlanta.com.
2: One of the other things I saw was that he, I I guess when he initially described it, maybe he was saying that, Maybe he hit something with his back tire. He thought maybe it could be a safety cone or something. But the actual vi- I wasn't sure if it was the video or, or eyewitness testimony, like it was bad enough. It actually showed the front end of the truck, you know, sort of visibly moving when he when he hit her.
1: Correct. And it showed the the back, I mean the the, the rear tires were the ones that um bounced the most um and you know that's what he said he thought first he said he thought he ran over a pylon which you know a five-year-old can bend in half you're not going to have
0: uh, right. yeah <laughs> a, a 26,000 pound truck lift up in the air right
1: right right yeah. and then he said oh he, he was so uh, attentive and hugging the curb so you know professionally that he must have run over the curb with the back tire and then that's what caused it to to lift. But, um, you know, as i said, the accident reconstruction showed. And, you know, one of the things that, that, um, although police didn't reach the right conclusion initially in their report, the um, photographs that they took and the angles that they got and the evidence that they gathered were very helpful. We had to fight uh, for months and months and months to get that information. Um, But once we got it, it was, you know, it was very important and helpful.
0: Is, is that normal in uh, the San Francisco area that it's hard to get the police investigation, police photos, things like that?
1: It can be when there is an allegation of a, a governmental entity that's involved. Okay. Um, so, you know, we see it a lot with, um, Caltrans or the muni buses. And actually one of our witnesses, the first witness we put on the stand was a muni bus driver who came from the opposite direction. Um, to to the scene, and she, you know, put her flashers on, turned her bus off, and said, "I'll be right back." To the passengers uh, on her bus, and she went and rendered aid. Wow! Um, yeah, and held held only and probably you know, with her last breaths.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, And I saw, in a, you know, and I know not to get too much into it, but I mean, she it sounded like she was alive, struggling to breathe uh, after this had happened. And while they were trying to give her aid, is that, yeah. Is that right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So the tires um, hit her skull um, and ran across her torso. And it was the, the torso crush um, degloved, but that's, <clears throat> that's what caused death.
2: And the scene photos are really, um, just really chilling. I mean, you know, just with her not being there, but what's left, you know, the kind of debris and, and I think her helmet, some other things, it's just, it's even not knowing what happened and just seeing that picture, you know, something Mm -hmm. really horrible happened.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah,
1: absolutely.
0: Yeah uh, back to the issue of him staying in the truck, uh, I, I've, I've seen that before in other trucking cases where it, it'll in fact be in their policies and procedures where they say, you know, don't you know, stay in your truck, call dispatch, don't admit fault. Um, you know, take pictures. I mean, it's very sort of, you know, it, everything other than, you know, give help and never say the truth about what happened. Did you, as part of your case, did any of that type of evidence come out about, uh, where they were being, he was being instructed on, you know, basically not to render aid or not to, not to get out and help or, or do things like that?
1: No, he did say that he was, you know, needed to call um, dispatch, but it wasn't one of those things where like you're describing where there's a process and, you know, that's what they're supposed to do, <laughs> it, it, which probably would have been more understandable, frankly, to some of the, the members of the jury. Instead, it just sounded like he could have gotten out and helped and then called dispatch a few minutes later mm, um, yeah. and just chose not to, to render help. He
0: um, you know, was not, um, super sympathetic in in that regard. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I wanted to uh, have you talk a little bit about the, um, the reconstruction that you did on the case, because you, you sent us the reconstruction and it was a 3d reconstruction of the case. And it was very effective of sort of not only explaining, you know, where Amelie was in relation to the truck and where the truck was, but also, uh, you know, what I thought was very effective was the the mirrors and showing um, that he would have been able to see her from both of his mirrors uh, when he was making the turn. Um, talk about, uh, the you know, the process of walking through and getting a, a 3D reconstruction like uh, the one you all used uh, done.
1: Well, it was in a couple of steps. So first, I went with the expert. Um, we had them hold the truck and we went to uh, Sparks, Nevada where they had the truck and photographs were taken and lots of measurements and, you know, discussion of the, of the type of mirrors. Um, you know, there were also different options that they could have had, um, installed in terms of what type of mirrors and how they were, um, meant to be focused, if you will.
0: Um,
1: but there was absolutely no reason why if they had been adjusted properly for the driver, Um, He couldn't have seen everything he needed to see, especially based on his own testimony about where he first saw her. Um, Mm -hmm. And then this, you know, right before trial kind of new testimony that she had this amazing Olympic vibrating level (laughs) skill. Um, So but um, what the expert did was, you know, use drones and, um, you know, take map out the entire intersection um, and, you know, yards and yards on both sides um, and and just put it all together using the measurements from the truck and the mirrors, the evidence um, from the police department where things had landed. You know, her helmet was broken into several pieces. And because we were able to finally get the autopsy photos and understand a little bit more about how the tires hit her skull, it wasn't like a complete roll over. So it wasn't that kind of crush. And um, the expert was able to um, do measurements in terms of the angle and um, the velocity, how far the different pieces went of her helmet and where they landed. Um, There was also a a little nut from probably her bicycle that got um, stuck in the asphalt and where that was and in relationship to where the bike was. So, I mean, it was just an incredible job. I don't, you know, I I can't speak highly enough about um, doing what it takes to find the absolute best biomechanist and accident reconstructionist you can find um, when the case warrants it, which in a case like this, it absolutely did. And and what I didn't send to you all was the um, kind of the video. I sent you the slides. Right. um, But the video was very impactful.
0: Yeah, yeah
2: I thought I thought it was, um, I thought it was really interesting and a, and a good point, especially for your reconstruction, where you know you think about kind of the the immediate things, you think about the vehicle or you think about the bike, and you think about the person's injuries if they've survived or you know, um, but you don't you don't always think about. I mean, it seemed like you all kind of used everything. You used sort of the scuff marks and the marks on the equipment. You kind of. Um, which I think people think a little bit less about the clothing somebody was wearing or what they had with them. But you really, all of that helped put y'all put it together. What happened? I thought that was really cool.
1: One of the things that was interesting was um, they picked up on there being a severed earbud. So just, you know, the earbud and the cord. And at the last minute tried to make an argument that she was wearing earbuds, which is against the vehicle code. And therefore she couldn't hear him coming um and you know I, I don't think that was persuasive to the jury uh, most people if they have something in their ear in california will ride with just one ear button mm-hmm. in but also there was no evidence that he honked his horn or um did anything uh to try and notify her that, that he was there
2: right yeah
0: um, well, um, let's talk a little bit about Amelie and her family. Uh, uh, I mean, first of all, you know, we should have said this, uh, right at the beginning. I mean, just an absolutely beautiful young woman, uh, seemed, you know, from the video you sent us, just seemed like she was full of life, uh, like to, um, uh, to have adventure, like to have fun, just was just was a, a, an all-around uh, a great young woman. Uh, talk about how you presented the the damages in this case. And then I, I guess as part of that, how um, the parents were as witnesses and were, and did you keep the, you know, sometimes we talk to people about whether or not they have them in the courtroom the whole time. Did you have them there the whole time and, and, um, and then how they did when they were on the stand? Well, we let uh,
1: it be their choice. Um, you know, and there was full disclosure. We had com- certain conversations in front of them, um, regarding strategy because we wanted them to feel, uh, involved and, and like this was, you know, what they wanted, how they wanted it, because, you know, there's always those opportunities to try and resolve a case before trial. And we got to a point where the parents just said, I can't put a dollar amount on Amelie's life, it doesn't matter what they say. We have to have a jury tell us. We can't do it as parents. We just can't, emotionally. Um, which, you know, is a is a lot of pressure for the trial. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. right, right. Yeah. Um, so uh, we just started, you know, it was kind of a cradle to grave story about who Amelie was. And because I had a relationship with the family, I actually was at the memorial service and got to talk to friends of hers. And, um, you know, even that was interesting because there were all these people in their early 20s there mourning the loss of this, as you said, this life of the um, party, so to speak. Uh, You know, smart, funny, friendly young woman, talented, I think I sent you some clips of her and her brother singing Christmas Carol.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: It's a very musical family. Um, Jessie moved to France when she was in her twenties and that's where she met Denny and they met at uh, an Episcopal church. She's an organ player. He was in the chorus. So like this, this family grew up um, with music um, and, and in the church. And so, you know, thankfully there were a lot of videos and a lot of, um, photographs, and we were able to bring in people from different aspects of her life to talk about her. We had the wonderful perspective of the older sister, Rose, and her baby brother, Charlie, um, and she had really strong relationships, although they were very different with, with each of the members of her family, and we were just able to, through stories and videos and photographs, um, give, give her a uh, the proper presentation of who she
2: was. Yeah. 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 we so were you able, the video that you sent us, which is, which is beautiful. It's just really beautifully done. And it's, it's these pictures of Amelie and I I think it's the music from Amelie, the movie that's um, that's playing with the pictures. Were you able to, to play that in closing or, or, or some other part of the case was the jury actually able to see it?
1: Yeah, so that was what her company put together. She worked at this incredible um, marketing and advertising company, South of Market. I mean, it was, you know, the quintessential young woman in San Francisco, first job out of college. Um, You know, she was living the life. It was what she wanted to do, it was the job that she wanted. Um, And she made such an impact on her coworkers. Um, She was the person that everyone would go to, to share stuff. She was constantly, she would leave little post-it notes on, on everyone's desk. I mean, she was just that, that connective glue. And they talked about her. um, They put a ghost bike up in front of their, uh, their office. And they talked about her as this, the spokes. She was what brought everyone and all the different groups at the company together. Um, she got along with everyone. She was hilarious. It's, it's interesting to read people's emails after they have passed and, you know, their their internal messaging chats. But um, we talked to a lot of the people she worked with and we put one on the stand and he kind of explained to everyone who Amelie the Young Professional was. And he's the one who put that video together.
2: Oh, wow. Okay. So it wasn't for, you know, litigation or, or, or whatever. It was something that, that they had made to remember her by kind of.
1: Exactly. Wow. Right. And her, her desk, we went to see her desk, oh, probably a year and a half after she was killed and it was exactly the same and they weren't ever going to change it. It's probably,
2: if
0: that company
1: is still in business, there's probably only his desk still there.
2: Oh, Wow.
0: Wow. Well, and and I noticed I just um, I uh, had done a little research on this and I noticed that the, the San Francisco Bicycle Coalition has a special page that's that's dedicated to Amelie. And it sounds like they do um, maybe a sort of a silent ride or, you know, remembering people who've passed away, while riding their their bicycles did did the I mean other than the fact that they had helped you find this video that we already talked about was the were people from the bicycle coalition involved as far as witnesses or anything like that
1: they weren't because we were able to get the chain of custody about the video so we didn't we didn't need them to but they were absolutely involved politically and Mm -hmm. Uh, in terms of educating San Franciscans about the dangers of riding bikes in San Francisco. I mean, the work that they do is fantastic. Um, tons of advocacy work. There's a Bike to Work Day um, in San Francisco every year in May, and they raise money, they educate, um, they work with other nonprofits. You know, we have lots of one-way streets going through San Francisco and can yeah. get going at a pretty good clip. So we've got issues with pedestrian safety and bicycle safety, and they're still there doing
0: all of the great work that they do. Yeah, I thought it was interesting, going back to this issue of tension, I I thought it was interesting that in the three deaths in that area, I think, was it called the SOMA? Is that what that area is called? Um, nobody, Nobody had been given a ticket or had been prosecuted for any of those three deaths, but apparently the year before, there had been some sort of a bicycle collision between a bicyclist and a pedestrian and they, uh, they made sure to prosecute that bicyclist. So it really did feel kind of like there was this bias by the police department, um, against, the uh, against bicyclists. Um,
1: Absolutely. There's, there's no other way to say it. Um, like I said, I think that that tension has died down a little bit, but, um, it was really awful, and yeah. bicyclists were not being protected, and people were making um, huge mistakes and endangering bicyclists. And the police always sided with whoever was opposed to the bicyclist. Wow,
2: wow. Micah, you mentioned that um, towards the beginning that that you picked this case because it was special to you, it was important to you. It was one of these things where it felt like a, a lot of things were coming together. And can you talk uh, about, you know, how much of that was was this family? How much of that was kind of the importance of the case when we're talking about this kind of the tension, this and this sort of these these accidents that were happening and sort of the public importance of of the case?
1: You know, I have to say, although the public importance of it was huge, um, a lot of my cases I feel like have that same aspect and it's why I get up every day. It's why I do what I do for a living. And I feel so lucky to be able to do that. Um, I also think that as trial lawyers, you know, we have to represent our clients, but all other people, other consumers, other workers who are in those same circumstances. So mm-hmm. everything we should be doing should be making better everyone's lives. Mm-hmm. Um so, but, and, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> with this case, it, it to me, it was the family connection and, and the people that I was lucky enough uh, to represent in this case because they suffered an imaginable loss. It's something that is unnatural to have to bury a child. Um, and she was just so incredible. I know, um, you know, people say trite things like she lit up a room and all of that stuff. But (laughs) she she really did. And you could feel it when you talk to other people. I did all the damage witnesses and it was just, um, it was palpable. Everyone got it. They got who she was. And so um, it just, it meant a lot to be able to tell her story and explain um, how devastated these parents were Um, because they don't have her. So Jesse, the mom has some, um, you know, some complications like everybody does. And, uh, Amelie would go and and help her mom kind of stay organized. We went to the home and opened, uh, the kitchen cabinets and Amelie, Jesse still had them up. Amelie had post-it notes for where things were supposed to go just to help, mom, you know, organized and together. And she was one of those people who would just leave someone a secret little note to let them know she was thinking about them or she loved them. I mean, she really lived all of the things that I try to remember to do, you know, yeah. <laughs> tell people you love them, you spend mm-hmm. time, you know, with the people that mean something to you, all of that stuff. And, and she was able to balance it um, and really do that at a young yeah.
2: age.
0: Wow. Well, um, I wanted to ask you, um, you mentioned uh, that uh, when we talked about the jury and and the fact that you left a a district attorney on there and that while she was – you know, good on liability, maybe not so great on the damages part of it. Did you get a chance to talk to the jury afterwards and, and, um, and find out kind of what they were thinking, what they liked? And, and I guess, I I don't know if there was a specific, uh, an an amount asked for in closing. Um, Did you find out what happened with regard to that?
1: Um, A a little bit. Um, You know, most of the jurors talked to us. It was interesting because they didn't They didn't really want to talk to the other side. Um, And, you know, but they weren't sharing a ton of information. So Bill Bean did the closing and he did a great job and he asked for a lot of money. Um, And, you know, I think that, again, because there wasn't the financial support. Right. And we're really trying to describe a relationship, um, you know, it was just lower. It was lower than uh, we wanted. Uh, the lawyers, I'm saying,
0: for right, the right,
1: for yeah. the family, but the, you know, again, the parents went into this feeling like whatever the number is is what the number is. Yeah, someone else is going to tell us that. So, you know, you all, you always have those jurors who would say, well, you know, you should have spoken more, or that one should have talked less, or <laughs> you know, they've got all kinds of opinions, or I didn't like that one suit you had on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs>
1: So once we got through kind of all those superficial things, um, really at, at the foundation of the comments, it was just kind of expressing empathy, um, for the family and kind of acknowledging that they, they got it. They got that part. They got how hard this was. They got how great she was. Um,
0: I got to think that one thing that was especially satisfying to the family after the verdict came out was that while the defense had spent so much time trying to blame Amelie for the accident, that the jury found that she wasn't at fault at all, that uh, it was 100 percent fault of the, uh, the defendant and the defendant driver and and, I, and while that's there's no monetary value to that, I know to a lot of clients and to a lot and, and family members that that is just an important thing to them to sort of be exonerated in that way.
1: right that, that was it. I was holding Jesse's hand. I don't know whose hand I was holding on the other side, <laughs> but I remember <laughs> holding Jesse's hand. and when they they read that part, she squeezed me and said that was it. That's what she wanted. Mm -hmm. She was so offended and so hurt um, that they, you know, wouldn't take responsibility and that they were arguing so uh, voraciously about, about liability, you know, and as a lawyer, we try to explain, this is just what they do. And, but um, I don't know how those two parents sat there in that courtroom all those weeks and listened to all of that. It was, uh, it was a lot.
0: Yeah, no, it, it takes a special kind of courage to go through that. And I, we say that to all of our clients, because the last thing, I mean, lawyers like to get up and try cases, but the last place a client ever wants to be is, you know, putting their life under a microscope or putting their daughter's life under a microscope. And, uh, and to, you know, go through that, uh is just it's courageous. And um and so I'm glad they were uh they uh uh were exonerated and, and won in the way that they did.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially because you know, if they hadn't dug in, then who knows what would have happened, you know, in terms of just figuring out what had actually happened with the facts. I mean, I, the bicycle coalition was involved, so maybe it would have still come out, but you know, they were, they were doing the right thing for their, for their family and her memory, but also for the public too, because it yeah. was bringing attention to the issue.
1: Absolutely. And that was one of the first corners to get, um, new painted lines. Um, they actually did some of the, the new demarcations before trial, which was interesting because thankfully we had photographs. I think photographs I took on my cell phone, you know, a couple days after, but they went in very quickly the city and county and and painted uh, a new bike lane demarcation at that that corner. But they also got after the trial more serious um, demarcations and some cones that uh, help help people know where the bike lane starts and ends.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to think that you know they could have very easily just listened to the police officers say that they thought this was their daughter's fault and just decided not to pursue it, and that would be the end of it. Um, So it's we're glad that they uh, glad that they didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, Well, um, Micah, this has been just really uh, a a great talk. Fantastic work for the family. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to make sure to remind everybody that we've been talking about the uh, Le Molac and Jewett versus Daylight Foods, Inc. uh, case tried in 2015, 2014 and 2015 in San Francisco County, and it resulted in a four million dollar verdict. Is there anything else that you want to make sure our listeners know about this case? Uh, That we haven't had a chance to talk about.
1: No, I think because Yvonne mentioned we are recording on International Women's Day, I think the thing that I would say to other women out there trying cases is please keep doing it. Yeah. Um, Don't be embarrassed or ashamed or feel like you're less than if you need more help. Bring in people who can, um, you know, guide you. It doesn't mean there's any fault or flaw. Um, it, it's great to have a big team. I'll tell you one last thing The the lawyers, by the time we got to trial, the lawyers disliked me so much. <laughs> almost every question I asked would get an objection and not just from one of them. There were three defense lawyers. They would jump up and like the Keystone cops, like bang into each other um, because they were, you know, so excited to object to everything I had to say. Um, and, you know, I, I wear that, that proudly. We need more women trying
0: cases. Absolutely. Yeah. More, more uh, women, more people getting out there, getting justice for their clients uh, is, is so important. Uh, that I, I, that reminds me, and it, you know, and we haven't mentioned it, Yvonne, um, the story about the way they objected to your questions reminds me of that story uh, that you used to hear from Bobby Lee Cook, the, great trial lawyer here in Georgia, who just recently passed away. But the story where, you know, he he was doing a cross or a direct, I can't remember what, and the other side would object. And the, the lawyer would, I mean, uh, the judge would rule and rule against him. And he'd say, thank you, Your Honor. And with a big smile every time. And finally, during one of the breaks, the judge is like, you know, you know, I'm ruling against you. Why are you smiling every time? He's like, you and I know that you're ruling against me, but the jury doesn't know, you know, understand that as long as I'm <laughs> smiling and being happy about it, you know. So, uh,
2: <laughs> yeah that is great that's how uh-huh. you know you're getting that's how you, you know how you're getting to them Mike that's right when, when they're exactly falling I've over themselves that, to object
0: well yeah the only reason you're getting to them is because you're doing such great work and so uh uh, you know keep at it please and um and uh congratulations again on this case uh very deserving for the family let me remind everybody that we have been talking with micah star liberty of uh, liberty law office which is located in oakland and san francisco california and you can look up micah at libertylaw.com. micah thank you so much for coming on
1: Thank you so
0: much for having me. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with, or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, We've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our podcast.com as well as a, a glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website.
2: Yeah. So check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials Podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at GreatTrialsPodcast.com. Note, if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah,
2: we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say um, our podcast is not available for review. We,
0: we also want to thank, uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our, uh, uh podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from podcast on the go and Alison Hirsch, uh, from Capricorn communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the great trials podcast and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again.
2: Thank you for listening.